Well, good morning again. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, uh, verses 1 through 27 will be our sermon text for this morning. Let me say, if you don't have a Bible, there should be plenty of Bibles on the back table. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, you should feel free to take one of those Bibles from the back table, write your name in the cover, keep it as your own, bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Before we read Matthew 21, let me pray for us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we come before you again to hear from you. Uh, we pray that you would open and soften our hearts, that we would be able to receive your word. Work now by your Holy Spirit in us and through your word in a way that brings glory to our Savior Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 27. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that, fo- and that following him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple. And drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea. It will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, 
And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? They discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Why are you here? What do you hope to get out of this service? What do you hope to get out of being a Christian? What do you want from God? What problem in in life do you hope that He will solve? You know, there is an appropriate self-interest in religion, right? Coming to God to receive what God promises for God's purposes. But there's also an inappropriate self-interest where we're really just using God and using religion for our own ends, our own purposes, and our own agendas. Often we use religion to try to control, right? If I, if I do the right religious things, God will make my life happy. If I follow the right religious rules, then people will look up to me. If I pray the right prayer, then God will give me what I want. See, we use God and use religion really to serve our own agenda. This often happens when we see our biggest problem as being something external. Right? If we see our biggest problem as, as something being out there, we see it as, as being our, our need of education or our need of money or our, or our looks or our relationships or something we see out there in the world that we want God to fix. We may even think it's a character problem, right? Like, I need God to to help me to be less lazy and to work harder at my classwork so that I can get better grades, so that I can get a better, into a better grad school, so that I can get a better paying job, so that I can whatever, whatever, whatever. See, we have a certain picture of the way we think life should be, and we want God to kind of help us make that picture a reality. And religion, then, is really just a a means to help me achieve my goals. At most, spiritually, it's just kind of a, maybe a get-out-of-jail-free card, so I can go on living as I please without the fear of hell. So we want to use God to help us live the way we want to live. God, on the other hand, wants to save us from our way of life. To live in communion with himself. See, your biggest problem is not money or your landlord or your teachers or tests or grades. It's not your marital problems or even problems with your kids. Your biggest problem is a heart that clings to all of these things as the source of life. That clings to the world rather than to God. And in our text this morning, we see Jesus ride into Jerusalem as a king coming to put things right with the world. Jesus doesn't necessarily come to solve the problems that you think you have. Oh, they may be real problems, but the heart of every problem is our hearts. That we are worshiping, that we are loving, that we are serving the wrong things. 
See, when we use religion to serve our own agenda, when we look to God to fix all the problems around us, it really leaves us and our hearts untouched because we think the problem's something out there. But God wants to bring us into communion with himself in a way that changes us forever and in a way that bears fruit. That's what we're going to see this morning, uh, that we often use religion to serve our own agenda, which leaves us unchanged. But God wants to bring us into communion with himself in a way that changes us for good and forever. The problem we're looking at this morning is, is not out there in sort of the big bad world, but it's a problem right here. A problem right here in our religion We need Jesus to come and reform our religion, to transform our worship, to change our hearts. We're going to see this uh, a bit differently than normal this morning. We're actually going to take a a little trip through the Bible, a history we're going to see first, a history of failed kings and failed religious reforms. You can see this outline, by the way, in the back of your bulletin, a history of failed kings and failed religious reforms, and then a new king and a new reformation. And then we're going to look at looking to King Jesus to reform our hearts. First, we're going to look at this history. I want to take you back, back not to the very beginning, but back to the Exodus, You may remember in the story of the Exodus, in the book of Exodus, God's people are kind of languishing in slavery. Their enemies had oppressed them, and it seemed that the false gods of Egypt were winning the battle with Yahweh. Really, it seemed like there was no contest. God's people were enslaved. But God saw the condition of his people, and he was moved with compassion, and he raised up a deliverer for them, Moses. Now, Moses was not a king, but he was a prophet, and he was the leader of God's people. So God, through Moses, he he did battle with the false gods of Egypt, you may remember. That's what the plagues were all about. Through the plagues, God showed the powerlessness of the false gods of Egypt. He defeated Egypt, and he brought freedom for his people. Well, the story goes on, you may know, and eventually, 40 years later, Moses dies. God raises up a new leader man named Joshua. Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land, but then Joshua dies. Israel is left leaderless. And it's practically the next verse in the Bible that says this. It's in the book of Judges, chapter 2. It says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. See, without a leader to direct them, uh, Israel almost immediately turns to worship false gods. It's like the knee-jerk reaction of their hearts. Why would they do that? Well, for one thing, uh, the book of Judges tells us that uh, they did not know the Lord, that the new generation that was raised up after the death of Joshua didn't know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. You see, they had forgotten They had forgotten who God was. They had forgotten what God had done for them. There's another reason. Israel gets into the promised land. They begin to look around at the nations, at the Canaanites. And uh, some of them maybe were doing pretty well and their crops were growing. Their wives were fertile, which, by the way, that was all somebody needed to be rich in that culture. 
And, uh, you know, sometimes you look out at what other people have and you think, hmm, I want, I want that. How did they get that? And, of course, the answer for the Israelites, the Israelites start thinking, well, they, they worship the god Dagon, the god of crop fertility and grain. He must be the one who's giving them those crops. And they, they worship the god Asherah, the goddess of motherhood and fertility. She must be the one giving them children. If we worship these gods, maybe we'll get this stuff. See, religion had become a means of getting what they wanted, crops and children. It became a, a means of financial gain, since those are what made up wealth in ancient days. See, idols are really just a means of using religion to get what you want. And the result of Israel turning away from Yahweh, turning away from the true God and to these false gods, is not quite what Israel expected. They thought life would go better for them, but in fact it made Yahweh angry with Israel. I mean, this is what happens, right, when a, when a husband turns to other women and is unfaithful to his wife, or when a wife is unfaithful to her husband. And yet, God is more than a spouse to his people, but he's not less. So he becomes angry with them when they turn away from him to other gods, and he gives them over to the nations. He says, fine, if you love the nations so much and their gods, I'll give you into their hands. Here you go. And Israel is again enslaved, and... Uh, by the nations and oppressed by them. Every time Israel turned to the false gods of the nations, God gave them over to be oppressed and enslaved. But eventually, Israel would cry out for deliverance, and God would have compassion and raise up a new leader to deliver them. This happens again and again throughout the Old Testament. It's like a refrain in the book of Judges, right? Uh, uh, they, they turn to false gods. God gives them into the hands of their enemies to oppress and enslave them. They cry out to God. He sends a deliverer to free them. The land has rest for a number of years until that deliverer dies, and the whole cycle starts over again. If you've read the book of Judges, you know that really it's a downward spiral. It only gets worse and worse until the end, which says, in those days there was no king in Israel, no leader, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was complete moral and spiritual chaos. I want you to think about this question. What, what was Israel's problem? They thought their problem was the nations. Right? They cry out for deliverance from the nations. It's not even clear that they're always crying out to, to Yahweh. <laughs> Uh, it, it, they, they just want someone to fix their problems. You know, God, fix my problems. God, make my life happy. And so they cry out for deliverance. But there really are two problems, aren't there? I mean, Israel is being oppressed by their enemies. That's true. But that's the result of Israel worshiping false gods. Israel needs to be freed from the external oppression of their enemies, yes, but Israel needs to be freed from the internal impulse to idolatry. It's their heart that loves the world more than God. That's what they need to be freed from. See, they saw their main problem as something out there, the nations, their enemies, something external. And they cried out for deliverance. But they really needed deliverance, not just from their enemies, but from themselves. It's interesting, as you read the book of Judges, what is it that they need according to the book of Judges? Well, in those days, there was no king in Israel. What they need is a king. Why would they need a king? Because a king could lead them in war and worship. Right? A king could lead them in battle against their enemies. 
and in worshiping the true God. A king could bring peace. And the story goes on, and uh, eventually God does give Israel a king. And I, I want you to think about the great King David for a moment. What is David known for? King David is known for de defeating Goliath, leading God's people in war. And he's known for being a singer of psalms, leading God's people in worship. In fact, David even wants to build a temple for God. He, he, he wants to build a, a permanent residence, a per permanent dwelling place for God's name in the midst of Israel so that God's people can worship him aright all the time. David is really the king that Israel needs. The only problem is David himself dies. But before David dies, God makes him a promise. God says, one of your own children, David, I'm going to raise up, and he will build a house of worship for my name. And of course, Solomon is born, whose very name means peace. And when Solomon is anointed king, he actually rides through Jerusalem on a mule. And because David, his father, had fought so hard for Israel to have peace, Solomon is able to build the house of worship. Solomon, the son of David, the king of peace, builds the house of worship to Yahweh. But then Solomon himself turns to other gods. He turns to the idols of the nations. Uh, religion, even for Solomon, becomes kind of a means to his own ends. And the peace of the kingdom is destroyed, and it's really all downhill from there. The temple itself becomes a place of idols, there are a few kings in the line of David who try to tear down the idols and restore the temple, uh, but it's really a losing battle. And that brings us to Jesus. You know, in Jesus' day, Israel was oppressed by her enemies. They were under the oppression of Rome, the nations. And everyone was looking for the return of the king. See, they wanted a king, a king like David, who would defeat their enemies, who would restore their kingdom. But of course, we know that that was never enough because their biggest problem, though they thought it was outward, they, they forgot that their biggest problem was really something internal. And that internal problem was even bigger. What Israel needed was not just a king who would defeat their enemies and free them from external oppression. Israel needed a king who would cleanse their hearts and free them from the impulse, internal impulse, to serve themselves. Well, enter Jesus. Jesus makes arrangements to enter Jerusalem one day. Similar to Solomon, he comes in riding on a donkey. I know donkeys and mules aren't the same, but they're very close. And uh, Matthew tells us in verses 4 to 5, Chapter 21, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus is coming in as a king in fulfillment of actually multiple Old Testament prophecies. Jesus, in riding into Jerusalem in this way, is for the first time in his ministry boldly proclaiming his kingship to the world. And as the people sing as he enters, uh, Hosanna to the son of David, right? Jesus is claiming to be the son of David, a new Solomon, the new king of peace, 
Who will save his people from their enemies? That's what Hosanna means. It means save or save now. But of course, the first thing Jesus does is not go and defeat Rome or head up to Herod's palace and cause trouble. No, the first thing Jesus does is ride triumphantly, as he rides triumphantly into Jerusalem, is go into the temple and cleanse it of its idolatry. See, the temple is supposed to be a place of prayer, a place of communion with God, a holy place of worship, of standing in awe of the divine. But it had become a common marketplace where people exchange money and sell cattle. Rather than a place of communion with God through prayer, the people's own agenda had taken over. Which means rather than a place of transformation and change, the people remained in their sin. That's the meaning of the phrase that that place had become a den of robbers, by the way. You know, the temple is supposed to be a place where people come and are freed from sin's guilt and power as they are restored to God. But a den of robbers is where thieves and traitors go to hide from the consequences of their sin, but continue to be the same old thieves and robbers. This is often what happens in religion, isn't it? I mean, even Christianity is about forgiveness, right? And so sometimes we think, well, now I'm forgiven. It really doesn't matter how I live. God has forgiven me. Christianity becomes kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card, so I can go on and live as I please. The church becomes a, a safe haven for thieves and traitors so that they can keep on being thieves and traitors rather than a hospital for the sick so that we can be made well by God's grace. So Jesus goes in and he begins to turn over tables because this is never what religion was meant to be. Well, the religious leaders, for obvious reasons, become indignant with Jesus. Uh, they didn't like the turning over of tables. They, they didn't like him performing miracles in the temple. They, they didn't like the children singing Hosanna to him. It was almost blasphemy. So eventually, they question his authority. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 says, um, when, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? See, they were the religious leaders. They were the ones in charge. They were the ones who allowed the money changers to invade the temple courts. And Jesus says, well, let, let me ask you a question. And if you answer me, I'm happy to answer you. Where did the baptism of John come from? Did it come from heaven or did it come from man? Well, the religious leaders, as you, we read, are in kind of a bind because if they say that John's baptism came from heaven, Jesus will say, well, John pointed to me, so why don't you believe him? But if they say that John's baptism came from man, well, then the crowds will flip because the crowds believe that John was a prophet from God. And you, you kind of notice that the dance that the religious leaders are, are doing, they're trying to maintain control. They're trying to figure out how they can hold on to their power. They don't want to give control over to John or to Jesus or anybody, so they're not going to say that John's baptism was from heaven. But if they reject John's baptism, the people will lose all respect for them and they will lose control anyway. Jesus has them trapped. See, religious for them is a means to their own ends. It's not a quest for truth. They're trying to hold on to control, but the true king has come. The true authority has arrived. 
You may have noticed there's this little story in the middle here, a story about a fig tree. Jesus is walking with his disciples in the morning and he becomes hungry and he comes to a fig tree and it has leaves, but it has no fruit. Now, I'm told at least that fig trees grow fruit and leaves at the same time, that if there are leaves, there should be fruit as well. Apparently, it wasn't the season for the fruit to be ripe, but there should be fruit nonetheless, even if it was unripe fruit. Jesus comes to this particular fig tree and there's no fruit at all. And he curses it and it withers. It's kind of an odd story. It seems strange. I mean, it's not eco-friendly, Jesus going around cursing trees. <coughs> but Jesus is really making a larger point. You know, in, in Jeremiah, God chastises his people at one point for being liars and greedy for unjust gain and dealing falsely with one another and proclaiming peace when there was no peace, for being unashamed to do wrong. And God is... is chastising his people, and he concludes like this. He says, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I give them has passed away from them. When I would gather, there were no figs on the tree. See, Jesus comes to gather, but there are no figs, and so even the leaves wither away. Now, now Jesus isn't angry at the tree. He's not ticked off that, you know, there's no food for him. That's not the point. Jesus isn't angry at the tree. Jesus is actually angry at Israel, his people. See, he wants fruit from his people, but there is no fruit. Jesus wants the fruit of praise and the fruit of repentance, the fruit of worship. But he comes to Israel and he finds idolatry. People using religion as a, a means of their own gain, as a means of control, as a means of self-promotion to satisfy their conscience so that they can go on sinning or to serve their own ends. And Jesus, as the king, is pronouncing judgment on Israel's idolatry. That this is the case is really further shown by what happens next. The disciples marvel at this, verses 20 and 22. They say, how did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not now... Do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Now, that's pretty strange as well, telling mountains to get up and fall into the sea. And uh, we can come to all kinds of conclusions from this passage if we don't keep the context in mind. Remember what's happening in these chapters is that Jesus is going head to head with the religious leaders in Israel. He's calling them out for their lack of fruit. He's rebuking them for defiling the temple. He curses the fig tree as a, a living parable of the judgment that God is going to bring on his people for misusing religion. And then he says to his disciples, in light of all that, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will be done for you. Now notice Jesus says, this mountain. This mountain is likely one of two mountains, right? It's either the Mount of Olives or by this mountain, Jesus is talking about the Temple Mount, the mountain that the temple is on, which maybe is the most likely in the context that Jesus is saying, if you say to this mountain, this Temple Mount, in which case Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple, the old order of things that's about to be brought to an end. And he's saying to his disciples that they should pray for that. 
that they should pray for the temple's destruction. Now, why would Jesus want his disciples to pray for the destruction of the temple? Well, because the old temple and its ways of worship had become so corrupt that God was going to do away with it. Rather than being a place of worship and communion and transformation, it had become a place of getting what I want so I can keep on living as I please. And you see this most clearly in the cross, don't you? God's people are so busy trying to use God to get what they want that when God actually comes in the flesh, rather than worshiping him, they put him to death because they're afraid that he might get in the way of their agenda. Jesus' authority is a threat to their life goals. So they nail him to the cross. See, while we are so busy trying to use God to get what we want, Jesus, God in the flesh, gives us what he wants, gives up what he wants to serve us by bearing our sin, not so that we can get what we want, but so that we can get what we really need. Having sin's guilt removed, having sin's power defeated, being restored to a right relationship to our Father in heaven. Jesus doesn't just come to, to cleanse the temple. He comes to cleanse our hearts so that we can have communion with God. Jesus is the king who has come to defeat the real enemies of God's people, first and foremost, the enemies within, and restore us to true worship. This brings us to the last point, which is looking to King Jesus to reform our hearts. I, I just want to ask three questions at this point. Uh, what does Jesus expect of us? What does Jesus find in us? And how can I be cleansed? And what does Jesus expect? What does he expect from his people when he comes to them? What does he expect of us? You know, what God has always wanted is communion with his people. It's a pretty radical thought, actually, that, that God wants to be intimate with his people. That he wants to be close to you. God is not, can, can only be close to you, of course, as God. He, he as our God, we as his people. Um, he cannot be less than who he is. He, he won't take second place in your life. He won't play second fiddle. God's not willing to be your mistress. He's not going to be your backdoor man. He wants to be your husband. He wants you as his bride. God doesn't want to be a means to an end. Someone to be used when helpful and discarded when he no longer serves your purposes. God created the world to be a holy place in which we might commune with him. Adam and Eve rejected God's advances, so God created a temple to be a holy place in which Israel might commune with him through prayer. But they chased after other gods instead. Jesus, the greater Solomon, is building his temple, the church, to be a place in, we might, in which we might commune with God. By place there, we don't mean a physical location, as in a church building, but we mean anywhere that we as a church are, that we might pray and praise and repent and believe, that we might offer to God the fruit of lips, that we might offer our lives as a living sacrifice. That's what God wants from you. He wants all of you in service to him all the time. That whatever you do, in word or deed, you would do all to the glory of Christ. And that in that you would delight yourself in the Lord as a bride delights in her bridegroom. That's what Jesus wants of us. What does he find? 
Well, is religion for you simply a means of escaping hell? Is it a get-out-of-jail-free card? Is it simply a way of escaping the consequences of sin so that you can go on living as you please? Or is God and religion a means to some other end, right? You hope God will fix your problems, make your life better, give you a better marriage, better children, more money, better relationships, whatever. You know, some of those things may be side effects of a relationship to God. As you fellowship with God, you will learn to love your spouse better, and, and that will change your marriage. But if that is your goal, then really that, whatever that is, is, is your real God. Is God a means to an end for you? Is he a means of living life free from judgment or of getting what you really want out of life? God wants you. Do you, do you want him? You know, my heart is so often divided, as I know that yours is as well. I have to fight for contentment and joy in God. It's not something that comes naturally to me. It's a battle with the Canaanite in my heart, so to speak. That my heart naturally clings to the things around me. And I need it to be cleansed. So that I would cling to God for God. Not cling to God for what God might do for me. Well, how can that happen? How can I be cleansed? It's really so simple and, and yet difficult at the same time. You know, we often use religion to serve our own agenda, which leaves us unchanged. But God wants to bring us into communion with himself in a way that transforms us and bears fruit in our lives. To do this, we must, of course, give up our own agenda and begin to serve King Jesus. You know, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, is, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, God wants to commune with us and he wants us to bear fruit. The secret is that the fruit comes from communion. It's only as we draw near to him and as we're close to him that he works that fruit out in our lives. Jesus wants to cleanse his temple, cleanse his people, cleanse our hearts. He's the one who does the cleansing. If you want to be cleansed, you must go to him. It's a process to be sure, but, but go to Jesus. He will cleanse your heart. He will reform and refashion it. He will renew your soul. He will give you his spirit and cause you to be fruitful to his glory. Let's pray. Father, we, we know that our hearts are not where they should be. We know that we often chase after the things of this world. We use you to get what we want in life. Father, we pray that you would, you would humble us, that you would soften our hearts, that you would break our hard hearts, that you would help us to see that rather than living for you, we are using you to live for self. Father, show each of us where that is in our own lives, that we might turn to you and confess our sin, repent, and find forgiveness afresh in Jesus, and draw that much more closer to you day by day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.